All right, hello, welcome to the Weekly Song Podcast. My name is Roger Heathers. With me, uh, as he often is, is Declan Kitchener, my co-host. How are you doing? Oh, hello. I like how I've been do- uh, downgraded to often as opposed to always. <laughs> I was going to go with me, as always, is my co-host, Declan Kitchener. And I thought, wait a second. Some anoraks out there aren't going to like this. Yeah, there have been one or two episodes where Roger was on his own, and I feel that they're underrepresented. <laughs> I think you'll find. Um, <laughs> but we are, we are here. We are back for um, another sort of out-of-the-season, beyond-the-season episode of the Weekly Song Podcast. Usually what we do on the show, if you are unfamiliar with it, is uh, Declan and I will each write a song in the space of a week and talk about how we wrote them and songwriting structuring and inspirations in general but to kind of keep uh, the content up and because we got a little bit more free time in um in lockdown well this is coming out during the COVID 19 lockdown we're For doing you future historians out there <laughs> yeah god i hope in a year's time if someone's going back through and listening to this they're free yeah you know it'd be depressing if they're not yeah, it would. Um, but so we're doing, uh, we kind of done like a series. I did an episode about like how to structure chords together, did one sort of writing a song on the show to kind of demonstrate that process. We've done episodes just rambling, talking, have a bit of a catch up. Um, and this episode, you came up with an idea, Declan, which I wonder if you could explain to the people at home. Well, initially, I was just thinking like um, we could just have a talk about. Uh, some of our favourite albums but then that sort of eventually morphed into uh, talking about debut albums uh, for some reason I can't remember what I think we were just talking about how we both love a strong debut but uh, towards at some point in the process it ended up becoming a talk about good debut albums and bad debut albums so I think this is just going to be busking on that theme for as long as this podcast (laughs) is yeah, exactly. I think uh, you just reminded me uh, inadvertently. What started off the debut thing was um, you recently got the album Fear Fun by Father John Misty. And oh, yes. y- it just reminded me, um, you know, I was looking for a record to listen to one night and I put on Fear Fun, sent you a photo saying, hey, you reminded me how good this debut album is. And then we kind of started to think like... Uh, well, I think I was doing um, a lot of listening to Queen of Denmark at the same time, which is another fantastic debut album. Oh, yeah, true. And then, um, so, I mean, let's, a little behind the scenes, we've both come up with a list of five debut albums, um, some good, some not so good, and we're going to kind of talk about them, and there's an element of, like, which ones are the good ones and which ones aren't. Yeah, your one, your list's going to be really interesting because you sent me a list of five artists that you like and five albums that generally <laughs> I think sound good so I'm kind of wondering how you split those into good and bad whereas mine is very it's very clear I feel which ones <laughs> I like and which ones I don't I I'm looking at your list here now yeah mine mine is ambiguous because it's like if you showed someone who knows me a list of the artists I put you go oh there's a Rogers like five favorite bands or something but um with your list I could tell immediately. I, well, actually, no, I don't know, because you're, you're an odd one to read sometimes <laughs> in a good way. Like, I mean, you've got, you've got a genre on here, hip-hop, loosely, which... Uh, a genre, a singular genre. <laughs> Declan's really into hip-hop now. <laughs> yeah, I changed, man. He's traded in his um, Telecaster for a set of decks and a microphone. Yes, I'm starting again. It's gonna be, it's gonna be the weekly hip hop podcast. So how do we do this then? Do we like um, 
Oh, I think we'll just start by talking about one of the ones that's near the top of either of our lists. I think the first one that was on uh, my list was Arctic Monkeys. Uh, whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not. I said, who's that girl there? I wonder what went wrong so that she had to roam the streets. She doesn't do major credit cards. I doubt she does receipts. It's all not quite legitimate. I'm going to guess that you think that's a really, really good debut. Yes, it is. I think <laughs> it's not really surprising. There are so many good bands from that era who came out with really strong debut records. Like you have Franz Ferdinand, Franz Ferdinand, uh, Fratelli's Costello Music, Kaiser Chiefs, Employment, uh automatic not accepted anywhere which is still one of my favorite records but the reason i picked arctic monkeys is because they actually managed to follow up on uh, their debut album with their second album favorite worst nightmare and they still have a career and they're still relevant so <laughs> yeah uh, but also uh whatever people say i am feels more like a complete set of work than a lot of those other bands of the era like as well as being like a very hard you know rocking record it is you you can see it in a couple of ways like it's it's either a really tight set of distinct songs or it's like a concept album about uh going on a night out and you can read it at either level and it works equally well yeah 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 totally i i I uh, I listened to uh I've listened to that album as well and uh but it wasn't my first Arctic Monkeys album I ever heard. I remember I have a very distinct No, likewise. I have a distinct memory of um going into HMV at probably age 13 or something. Um when it had just come out, you know, and putting on the headphones that they used to have in stores. I don't know if they still do. Um, no, they haven't some... had them for 10 years. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I remember going in and it was, you know, I didn't always listen to those headphone things, but when I did this time, they had that album, uh, Favourite Worst Nightmare, the second album, as one you could listen to. And I think I probably listened to the whole thing, you know, and then bought it because I was it's, so impressed. It's an incredibly strong album, that one. Um, I That was my first introduction was through the song Brian Storm. Mm. And then a couple of years later, I latched on to AM like crazy and then went through their back catalogue. Uh, but getting this slightly back on topic, mm. like it's it's kind of amazing how fresh that album still sounds. Like you could release that today, and it's you know still sound like a really fresh, exciting debut. It's not really aged. Definitely. I mean, as a debut, it's it's that kind of like it's the goose that laid the golden egg, and that egg is fully hatched. You know, it, it's a band where from the first opening song and the opening riffs and all that stuff, you realise that they have a fully formed identity, um, sound, and kind of way they write riffs and vocal rhythms, you know what I mean? It's, it's not like that needs to develop a few more albums to kind of, like, show that they have a true characteristic that's unique to them. It's like, oh, right, they're here, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, and they're already producing bangers, like, um, When the Sun Goes Down and... Uh bet you look good on the dance floor also one thing that surprised me going back to this is like how much quiet music there is in the album because you think of it as yeah. like a really heavy rocking record but there's loads of moments particularly in things like certain romance at the end where it sort of switches between like this really quiet guitars and like the full-on thing yeah it's um 
I, it's 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 great. I mean, it, there's something about Arctic Monkeys which I've never been able to like get into into, and I'm not quite sure what. I mean, you know, some bands resonate with you to where you delve into them, and some you think are great but you don't delve into. And I think they're one of those bands for me, for whatever reason. That's fair. I mean, you're not entitled to like every single band that ever existed. Uh, but yeah, for me, that one's just like a really strong record that you know, and I think one thing the thing that you could take away from this as being part of a strong debut is like having some sort of strong identity or strong feel like a lot was made about the fact from there from sheffield and everything which is not quite as usual most bands tend to come from like london or you know slightly further north and they you know the accents are really pronounced on that first record oh yeah totally um yeah i i think it's a very uh noel gallagher spoke about um arctic monkeys right at that period right at the beginning where they were like playing clubs and kind of there was this explosion going on where they were being heard and seen on a mass level for the first time and he said he saw them in a club and he said it reminded him of oasis not musically but in the sense that everyone was excited about what was essentially quite a new take on the on the rock band's uh structure you know what i mean I can see that. Like, it's kind of similar to what um, Dave Grohl was saying about like Billie Eilish last year at some point, wasn't he? Like, um, the mood that he gets from the shows is kind of like what Nirvana were like when they were beginning to blow up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that one's a little more of a stretch, but I can see his point. Well, like with the disaffected teenage youth and everything, like latching onto like a weird outsider kind of thing. Definitely. Do you see Billie Eilish as being quite? Um prescriptive or or like um i don't know marketed over marketed uh arguably she might become over marketed mm. but i think from what i've heard it seems to be like like the marketing is an extension of the music which she seems to have a lot more control of than a lot of other people would it's a very distinctive sound so mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's not the sort of thing I tend to think uh, spend a lot of time thinking about, I'll be honest with you there. No, that's true. I mean, that's one of those questions where I should have just said my thought on it rather than <laughs> turned it around. <laughs> do you, do, you, do you notice do you I do that? Do you agree with me? No, here's how you're wrong. <laughs> that's like the equivalent of um, saying to somebody, hey, how's your day been? So that you could say how yours is going. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude, that's human nature. Yeah. That just happens. It's very true. Uh, but yeah, that was the first record I wrote down, which was Arctic Monkeys, uh, whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not. Uh, what was the first one on your list? Uh, it was Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. I think this is a great record. I think uh, before you sort of say whether you think it's good or bad, I just want to say I think this is probably one of the strongest debuts from the eighties. Like it's, it's a very distinct sound and it's fucking stupid at points, but <laughs> it you know it it's a fun time if you're willing to go with it. Also, if you ignore the behind the scenes story about Rocket Queen. But uh, what were your thoughts on the album? I mean, it's great. It's so good. I mean, this this is like, you know, teenage me talking in a large 
in a large way because I got really into the band and they just kind of really did it for me. They they were obviously good songwriters. They're obviously great players. Axl Rose is such a character and such a, you know, phenomenon, a phenomena that, you know, he he's uh, captivating and charismatic to watch either live or just to listen to on the record, you know, he, he, with his lyrics and stuff. He's got that lyric in there. Um, I've been thinking about thinking about sex. I've been hungry for something that I haven't had yet. And it's like there seems to be this real portrayal of of what it was like to be in L.A. in a hair metal band at that time. It's a uh, it's a audio document as much as anything else. Yeah, for sure. History in the same way that like a Dylan or a Joan Baez record is like a documentary or a document, sorry, of of the sixties and that era of civil rights and stuff. I think in the same way, you know, walking through L.A. and you know the drugs and and you know Welcome to the Jungle. You know, Axl Rose arrived in L.A. on the Greyhound bus and to become what he became. And there's something about that sort of like hero's journey thing through Guns N' Roses that, and many other bands too, that is just so cool to see. And I, musically speaking anyway, I think Appetite for Destruction is just, it's full of good riffs. It's full of good melodies. I was going to say, there's, there's so many strong riffs. Like obviously Sweet Child of Mine is the one everyone knows, but you mentioned their um, uh, Welcome to the Jungle. You've got Paradise City. You've got Night Train. Oh, Night so Train. Dude. I used to play that in a band. Did you? We were, yeah, I was Cher- terrible at it. <laughs> was that Cherry <laughs> used to turn Scream? My down. That was, yeah. I, I used um... to turn my volume down slightly for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, my favourite... Uh, favourite, I don't know, it's difficult in there. Mr Brownstone is, is a killer song to me. It's not quite for me, but I think you've mentioned this before. It is a good song. I just I just prefer a lot of the other ones on the record. I mean, the cool thing about that record, and this will be my last point on it, I think, is uh, everyone knows the hits. Everyone knows Sweet Child of Mine, Welcome to the Jungle, you know. But then, to me, every other song is not only good, but some of them are better. And I think that just points to a good album in general, you know. Hmm. I think it's kind of, you were saying like it was teenage you talking, I think it's kind of like a rite of passage for teenagers and young adults to listen to that album if they're into guitar music and go, wow! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, if you think about it logically, it's stupid and it's over the top and like, you know, uh, and Guns N' Roses disintegrated relatively quickly afterwards. I know they did Use Your Illusion, but then after that they sort of split into Velvet Revolver and Axl Rose. But just that moment captured on record is just so energetic that all of that stuff doesn't matter. Totally agree. I mean, it's it's rock and roll as it should be, you know, chaotic, fueled by things that weren't good for the band, and then, you know, a split <laughs> pretty soon afterwards. Yeah. yeah. That's a great choice. Hey, let me see what's next on your list. Have you got your list there? Um, I'm trying to remember. I think I did it alphabetically. So ah. I think the next one for me that I wrote down as a debut was uh, Freddie Mercury, Mr. Bad Guy. That's what I've got here too. I'm going to... This is a tricky one, you know, because I know you love Freddie Mercury's music. I'm going to guess you think this is a bad debut. 
and writer Mundo. Uh, yes. This is. This was released in 1985, like around the time Queen had released like Hammer to Fall, Radio Gaga, uh, just like a year before they did Live Aid, and it's kind of a sequel to Hot Space. Which, for those of you not in the know, Hot Space was Queen's disco record, which sucks. <laughs> like, I like it, um, but I like it because I like Queen. Well, it's like you and couldn't convince another person that's a great record, could you? <laughs> no, I mean, there's one bona fide classic on it, uh, Under Pressure, but that was kind of just included because it was recorded between albums. <laughs> right. Um uh, and there are songs on there that I like, like Backchat and Put Out the Fire, but I could never say they're in the same league as things like Tie Your Mother Down or Bohemian Rhapsody or anything like that. Yeah, so no, yeah. You kind of have this album of pop synth, and it's really tacky, 80 cheesies pop synth. And re in a weird display from Freddie Mercury, the songwriting really isn't there for most of the album. Um, like a lot of them are just sort of like ground beats and everything and just moving between simple chords and uh, trying to display the voice a bit more which he's got a fantastic voice but you do need something cool backing it that is something that trips me out about Freddie Mercury is that he was I mean I might even say one of the best chord writers chord progression writers of all time you know up there with you know Harry Nilsson, Paul McCartney, Randy Newman and all these people, right? But then he had this thing where he would go into an era where he would just use the most simple chords and not in a good way. <laughs> it's, I mean, like, it's like, dude, you, you, wrote, you wrote the changes and the modulations in Bohemian Rhapsody, you know? <laughs> well, like, it's... Sometimes it does work, like, you know, uh, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, famously written in the bath, um, which has got a quite minimal chord set but it works whereas on here it really just doesn't it feels lazy like a load of the ideas are half-baked like a song that stands out to me is my love is dangerous which is basically those words and then like an answering line most of the time mm. and the most infuriating thing about the album is that it's not all that basic uh because a couple of the songs ended up on made in heaven right uh the last Queen album after Freddie died re-recorded so there was potential there it's just the production really lets them down and the single most infuriating thing for me is you get a taste of what could have been at the very end of the album because it finishes off with the one of the most beautiful songs Freddie ever wrote which was Love Me Like There's No Tomorrow Yeah. It's like done on piano. It's got like this sort of cool 70s s, but produced in the 80s, like backing with a light orchestra and everything. It's just kind of like, why wasn't why wasn't this the rest of the record? It raises oh. it raises an interesting point about like 
musical trends and i've spoken about this before on the podcast but i think nowadays we have a couple of things we have the internet which allows us to hear whatever the hell we like so we can we as musicians can garner a really broad and versatile um set of influences and also we have um the ability to look backwards at trends whereas i think if you were alive in the 70s making records and writing songs then you were in the middle of the trend of people um, identifying with punk, identifying with or with disco, or identifying with classic rock or what have you. But it wasn't even classic rock then, it was just rock music. And then the 80s came around, and I imagine for some people, like Freddie Mercury, they went through this phase of, this is the new thing, this is how you make music now, this is what's popular, and not to be popular, but just because, hey, look, you know, these drum machines are around in the studio let's use them and i think yeah, that it's... kind of overrides the instinct in people like you and i where we go no 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 no. okay right we got the hindsight to know the 60s and 70s had arguably some better attributes than some of the some of the 80s dance-based music so let's write some chords you know i mean that's all subjective and everything but i do agree with that but it's kind of what's doubly weird about the freddie mercury example and we will move on to the next one in a second uh is that it's like I say it's kind of a sequel to Hot Space because Hot Space was like made in the rush of the eighties like disco it was made on the back of uh, another one bites of dust being really popular it was using loads of modern synths at the time which they Queen toned down dramatically after that um, mm-hmm. and so Freddie knew that that wasn't like fulfilling or like it didn't sell albums. And still went along and made a solo album, <laughs> like Hot Space Two. Yeah, it's um an odd little moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of because there's one, there's sort of one way to look at it, and that it's like the lead singer of a band trying out something that, uh, that the parent band wouldn't be suited for, but then it's also trying out an idea that's already been done in the parent band, and that didn't work. Yeah, like is, you've trialed it. Which is kind of almost like you can sort of see that sometimes where bands break up and then the first two albums that are released is one of the members who does like the ultra traditional, this is what made us hits kind of way. And everyone going like, no, this is a new stuff. This is where we should have been going. If only I wasn't being held back. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, so not not the best debut from old Freddy, but I think he had other redeeming ones out there, so we can yeah. forgive him. We forgive you, Freddy. Well, uh, Love Me Like There's No Tomorrow makes that album worth knowing for me, but the rest of it, just gone. Mm. So, um, yeah. I blabbered on about that for a while. What was what was your next one? My next one is um, The Killer's debut, which is called Hot Fuss. I listened to this one today and okay so do you think i think it's good or bad this is difficult because i know you prefer samstown the second one because you've mentioned that before but i don't know if you think the first one is bad or not uh. I, it, get, it gets very simply towards <laughs> towards the middle and the end so 
<clears throat> okay, well, well, I think it's well, not bad, but like because it's it's not a bad album. But I mean, it's got like uh, somebody told me and Mr. Brightside on it, so it's got two redeeming features at least. Well, see, that's where I differ from. I think most people. And that's probably why I put it on the list, just because. I don't think Mr. Brightside and Somebody Told Me are actually good songs. Like, they're okay, they're, but they're just kind of four-chord, uh, cookie-cutter indie rock, you know? And I know I sound harsh saying that, but I only say that with the caveat that the praise I feel towards Samstown, the second album, Samstown is so well-written, so well-constructed. It's a mature band. They had beards by then. <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally growing the beard. <laughs> and um, what am I trying to say? Yeah, but anyway, so with that first record, I just felt like they... Like, whereas Arctic Monkeys were kind of fully hatched and they kind of came out guns a-blazing, I felt like the Killers came out very commercial, very commercialised, just in the sense of their songwriting and stuff. It's very... Sorry, um, I wonder if that's to do with the fact that the Killers are an American band uh, who I think they premiered on a major label, but I could be wrong. You know more about that than me. Uh, and the Arctic Monkeys were like an underground band who blew up on MySpace before getting a record deal to an indie label. I wonder if there's like a culture difference there. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there's definitely an element of that. I mean, like... Arctic Monkeys, you could pretty much like compare them to the Killers as being like the the rugged underdogs in terms of you know fighting their way up, which I'm sure the Killers had to do as, to a certain extent as well. But also, I think as well as that, which is a good point, you've also got the fact that you know they as a band, especially Brown and Flowers, the lead singer and pretty much lead songwriter in the band, was so influenced by by eighties rock. I mean, loads of other stuff. He's a big Springsteen guy and all this stuff, but. He loves 80s rock, so it's like it kind of points to why there's so many synths on the album and why. Because if you're really into 80s music, you'll probably make records the majority of the time which are quite um, consumable because it's the aesthetic you like, you know, very, very um, easy to consume and um, straightforward. Um, I mean, The Killers are one of my favorite bands of all time purely because of. Sam's Town, which is the second album. There, are, mm. I've got the rest of their albums too, and I like them, including Hot Fuss, and I like it. I like moments on these other albums, but nothing compares to Sam's Town. They became this other band on the second album. So I suppose I just put this on the list to talk about Sam's Town. <laughs> I just well, realised. Well, that's that's absolutely fair. But that also, also does highlight something that tends to happen with debut albums, particularly where bands maybe aren't given the time or the creative freedom to do what they want, and they have to grow into being the more famous band later on. Like, yeah. Uh, like, you say that they like Springsteen a lot. That really... Like, thinking back to a couple of the songs on Soundstown, particularly uh, when you were young, I can actually properly see that in there now. You've just lit a light bulb in my head. Yeah, and I, I think that's um, just uh, another point on that, on comparing the first album to the second album. With with songs like uh, When You Were Young, which was a huge hit, as big as, um, you know, Somebody Told Me or what have you, they still managed to appeal to, I think, probably widely uh, the, the same audience, but they matured the sound relatively quickly from one album to the next but managed to retain the audience which i think is a really interesting thing about how you can mature but keep that 
uh, appeal. Because I think sometimes people look at bands and they go, uh, you know, the classic thing. Oh, they changed. I used to like them. They used to be um, catchy or what have you. But I think to be to be able to retain that audience and uh, mature is cool. It's a hard trick to pull off, and not everyone does it successfully. It's, uh, mm. Yeah, it does like a situation like that does really then once a band has uh, sort of matured it that when you go back to their debut it does then suddenly highlight oh right <laughs> yes yeah they weren't always like this yeah definitely all right so uh, what was your third album then uh my third album was uh well it was originally going to be George Harrison, All Things Must Pass, but that's not actually a debut album. So I changed that one over to uh, John Lennon, uh, John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. So another... Beatle, solo Beatle. Yes, because I feel that they both kind of achieve the same uh, thing, which is kind of like a counterpoint to what I was talking about, about Freddie Mercury a few minutes ago, like going from being in a famous band to doing a solo record and failing. I feel that all of the Beatles stuff, but particularly for John Lennon on his debut, uh, really... they all reached like another level and with John Lennon the way that was sort of brought forward was with these very deep and personal songs like the whole album started off starts off with like a bell tolling and mother you had me but I didn't have you Mm. you get songs like god you get working class hero and the whole thing ends with the incredibly dark my mummy's dead god yeah it's it's great. I mean, it's so cool how he changed so much as a songwriter, you know, or like developed a whole different style post Beatles. Well, the therapy helped. <laughs> was he in therapy then? Was he? Yeah, yeah, primal screen therapy, which I think you ended up talking to uh, one of the therapists about the concept of God, uh, which is where he first came out with the line "God." Uh, God is a concept by which we measure our pain, which forms the backbone of um, the song God. Wow, interesting. I didn't know that. Which, again, that's a great song because it's sort of vents always frustrations, like either comically or serious, and it ends with, I don't believe in Beatles. I just believe in me. It's just like, okay, you have moved on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, I mean, it's a whole you could do a whole documentary on on John Lennon as a person. But what a strange, ever changing person, you know. I mean, shortly after this, he kind of got really into heroin, didn't he? Yes, but this is also more or less the time he starts looking back on some of the more negative aspects of his character, like. Uh, you have songs about actually dealing with his mother's uh, the grief of losing his mother so young, uh, mm. about you know the artificial position that he's been put in as like you know the working class hero when in fact like he's not been working class for ages, and like on the next album you see that continue with songs like Jealous Guy, 
which is almost like an apology for songs like uh, Run For Your Life. Yeah. It's kind of... It's that emotional maturity thing, but it's sort of starting in a way that it sounds like a Beatles record sometimes, but it's very clearly not a Beatles record. Yes, exactly. And I think... I think that's a great thing. I think if if he came out with um, a a solo album which just sounded like him trying to appeal to a Beatles audience directly, I don't think it would have been as good. But I think they all kind of took somewhat of a leap of faith um, going into their I, solo careers. Oh, it all paid off for them as well. Like um, I think, like I said before, George Harrison's "All Things Must Pass" is my favorite of the bunch just because he had so much material that he was suddenly free to do how he wanted you have Ringo with his like actually proving he could have solo hits with songs like uh, Photograph and then you have McCartney um, I love the McCartney album but that is a weird fucking album it's like a, it's a big list of demos and then at the end there's one of the most beautiful songs Paul's ever written and then it goes back to the demo-y stuff it's like oh wait dude dude come back yeah. <laughs> you you had it there I I always I know we're talking about John Lennon, but really briefly, I really admire the balls to do what McCartney did on McCartney One, of like he's just left, arguably because at that time people say oh it was Paul's band, you know you could debate that separately, but you know to to leave the biggest band in the world being one of the key songwriters in the band and go ah I'm gonna go to Scotland and play all the drums on my own record and just release some demos like wow that's so I like that to, that's kind to of- that's kind of what I love about McCartney is just like the big brass balls of that record. Like, no, this is it and you will enjoy it. And yeah. it's, you could sort of say that of all four of them. And with John Lennon, like I say, that comes out in a greater degree of introspection than, you know, he had been capable of previously with the sort of happy clappy image of the Beatles. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I think about how uh, therapy affects songwriting quite often, you know, um, because I've done some myself and it's just interesting what it brings up and because obviously you know if you go through therapy and it and it uh addresses some of your fundamental beliefs about yourself and about life you will change as a songwriter and it's interesting to see that in somebody like John Lennon or um I get the impression like uh what's his toast uh John Grant went through some therapy uh probably due to recovery and how that influenced his honesty on his record you know hmm i would agree with that outlook yeah i think john's john's the same too yes but uh also just fantastic production on that record it's like like i say it's sonically almost like a beatles record but it's a bit harsher and like guitars are a wee bit fuzzier everything's a bit more clipped definitely definitely um which suits the tone of the music entirely I just suppose if you know off the top of your head, um, if Tony Levin played bass on that album, do you? I think that was Klaus Foreman. Yeah, it's one but of the two, wasn't it? I I think it's Klaus Foreman, but I would not bet my life on that. I'm looking here. Um, yeah, he... yeah, Klaus Foreman bass guitar, pretty much every single song. Yeah. Ah. Because I think. Because yeah. I think he did the first two. Uh, Plastic Ono bands and Imagine uh, before going off and doing other things, playing for Carly Simon. 
<laughs> I am. Um, I'm looking at the track listing here, you know, just to see who was playing bass. And it here has here, you know, John vocals, acoustic guitar, piano, uh, Ringo drums on quite a few songs, class form and bass guitar, and it has um, Matt Evans, T and Sympathy, <laughs> <laughs> and Yoko Ono's on Wind. Uh, well, that, that's that's Yoko Ono for you. I've still not actually heard Yoko Ono Plastic Ono Band. What, did she do her own version of it or something? Uh, yeah, that's the whole point of it. That's why it's not called Plastic Ono Band. It's called John Lennon slash Plastic Ono Band. There's another one called Yoko Ono slash Plastic Ono Band. Different songs, I guess, right? Different songs, but it's almost identical covers. Huh. I, um... That's, uh, I bet it's awful. I mean, like, I, that I sounds don't mean, but there's there's this, what's that album called? Milk and Honey, where it's like every other song's a John and a Yoko and a John and a Yoko. And uh, you can tell who's the better songwriter. No offense, well, Yoko, if you're listening. I follow you on Twitter and I like all your stuff. I think you're a really interesting person. And I bought one of your books once and Declan disapproved. <laughs> well, I didn't like the book, but like, uh, I've got the Happy Christmas War is Over single. And the flip side of that is a Yoko Ono song, which I think it's snowing outside Kyoko or something like that. And it's actually not bad. Like it's it's not great. It's not nowhere near as good as the song on the A side, but it's not bad. So you know, I'd be interested in hearing it one day. Email into the show, Yoko, and uh, give us a five star <laughs> review on iTunes. <laughs> if we haven't like offended you enough, I'm really sorry. No, it's a great album. Um, so my next one on my list is Peter Gabriel One. Excuse me. Uh, otherwise known as Car. Yeah. Uh, all the first Peter Gabriel albums are just called Peter Gabriel, and so people have to define them in their own in their own ways. So yeah. I absolutely hate that move because it makes it impossible to search on the work computers. <laughs> like, do you want Peter Gabriel, Peter Gabriel, Peter Gabriel, or Peter Gabriel? Well, what year are they released? Well, the remaster was released for two thousand in all of them, but I couldn't tell you which one's which. Man, you are a big music collector, and I can imagine that pisses you off sometimes. <laughs> yes, because everything's got to be have the correct title. It can't have like fan abbreviated titles. Like for me, it's the Beatles, the Beatles, not the White Album, the Beatles. So like, <laughs> I would if I collected more of them, I'd have Peter Gabriel, Peter Gabriel, Peter Gabriel, Peter Gabriel. Well, yeah, that is um, it's, it's a weird little thing in in music's long history, that thing, but. Uh, do you think I like it or not? I think you like that record because you've recommended that to me before. You've played it uh, and you talk about the first track as being uh, the sound of Peter Gabriel leaving Genesis. So I think you quite like that album. Yeah, I, I do. It's great. I mean, it's... This is kind of like a loaded list on your end because like, I've heard <laughs> you talk so much. You've played me a lot of them as well. Like, I've heard you talk so much about them. It's It's funny now. I'm... I I used to have like this ever changing list of favorite albums, you know, and I think I've kind of settled on, you know, my favorites at this point. Not that I won't have new favorites, but an album like this, the the first Peter Gabriel album, is great. I mean, it is 
it's that thing we were talking about with the Beatles where like they they left the Beatles, you know, they disbanded and made their own solo albums. And there was a certain like um bravery to that, a certain leap of faith and a certain like um uh, opportunity to change their approach to writing and producing and all that different stuff and the aesthetic of the project. And I think it's the same when Peter Gabriel left Genesis. Um, it's a very varied album. Like it goes all the way from like sort of pop rock stuff to having like uh is it Salisbury Hill which is kind of like that acoustic-y one to the middle of it you just got a song that starts excuse me yes absolutely and that's that's what I love about it is it's... like it's five octaves higher than that obviously <laughs> um it's just an album where you can tell this guy had this newly found creativity where he went right okay i've had all these ideas and now i've got a record i can do all what, exactly what i want to do and you got such a you know you got the barbershop quartet stuff you got the slow blues um you know here comes the flood I which is like that. a big big rocker um it just also it's like an album of many many different genres genre roulette as as we like to say mm, and yeah. trips. and it's just that um great 70s production but with some really solid ideas by it's kind of like a 10 cc album in a way which is a weird comparison to make from the x singer of genesis but i was noticing like a few of your records they tend to have like similar sounds it's like okay we know what roger likes don't we (laughs) (laughs) i i was talking to um talking to my stepsister the other day and we we went for a walk and we're talking about music got onto the topic and she was saying to me I, there's something about music that changes all the time that just unsettles me. And I was like, I, I get that, I get that, but that's exactly the type of music I like. Which, um, yeah. I'm not sure if that's unusual or not. I mean, if you've got three minutes of time, like, I think it's a cool thing to, like, introduce some different stuff in there, you know, rather than just have the same thing for three minutes. But then I'm not People a huge lyrics person. Idea. Yeah, yeah. But, uh... Yeah, it's it's a very solid album. It's uh, like I don't have the context of having heard Genesis or many Genesis songs before that. Like I think the only one I know is Land of Confusion, which I think came after, to give a greater context to how much of a departure it is. Like, uh, can you elaborate on that? On, on what the the next album? Like how, well, like how different is it to like uh, the stuff Genesis was doing at the time? Oh right, yeah. I suppose that's a good point. Actually, like. I assume that people have heard Genesis, but... Uh, okay, so Genesis was this, like, very off-the-wall, um, artsy, you know, college-minded progressive rock band, and there was some cool instrumentation to it, and it was um, it was just prog rock music. You know, drugs were probably involved and all this stuff, and there was a lot of strange sorry, imagery sorry, as well. Roger, so. it was it was the 70s. Drugs were definitely involved. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, Peter Gabriel, when he was the lead singer of Genesis, he used to dress up as a flower, or he used to, you know, all sorts of strange shit that he used to dress up as, which was really interesting to see, but I feel like departing from that world of probably drugs and probably not having as much creative control as he would have liked, and maybe some personalities clashing in this prog rock atmosphere of this band you know he kind of came out of that and was able to express himself and i think at this i think he's another big therapy guy where he was able to address what was important to him um 
you know, in, in the song Salisbury Hill on, on this first record, he says, I was feeling part of the scenery. I walked right out of the machinery. I'll show them what the smile on my face meant. So you can kind of hear that this guy is, you know, making his own path rather than kind of keeping to what the group was doing. there a little bit there yeah which i love i think that's great i've always liked that line mm. it's a good one so what was next on your list there um well this is one that probably wouldn't have been in here if we did this a year ago uh mm. but it is kate bush the kick inside that you like it yes yeah so the process of elimination you know what's going to be for the last album but um yeah no kate bush the kick inside what a fantastic start to a career like, oh yeah it we were talking earlier about like uh people like the arctic monkeys turning up fully formed and everything like kate bush a she comes out fully formed and b she sounds like nothing else <laughs> yeah she sings like no human should be able to sing and she writes these weird songs that have these sort of lolloping chords that sort of go through weird changes and different rhythms and just it's such a great record you can probably speak more about it than i can well i've been into it for ages i mean it's she released it when she was 19 and that's I released it that's released it when she was 19 she wrote a lot of the songs when she was uh I mean, look, I'm looking at the back of the record here. Um, uh, you know, a couple of songs. Uh, Child, Man with a Child in His Eyes and the saxophone song uh, recorded, not even written, in 1975. And the album came out in 78. Uh, and, you know, so already you take four years away. So 15 when she recorded that. I think she was, tw- I think she was 12 years old when she wrote the, the Man with a Child in His Eyes, which is such a sophisticated piece of writing. Um, and... I, I, you know you, you have actually blown my mind um <laughs> she, she can't be allowed to live if she's this talented <laughs> it's crazy should, let's storm her house <laughs> how dare you write this good when you were young in in a weird sort of egotistical move i promised myself that i would release something by the age of 19 just so i could be just so that she wouldn't have beat me <laughs> you know <laughs> her and prince both released stuff and they're the same age by the way or the same year and at the same age they both released their first albums at uh uh 19 18 19 you know that sort of age and yeah, uh, i always thought gets. that was the coolest thing when i was like you know 14 or 15 i used to think i want to release something one day and i thought i've got to do it by 19 or else um or else <laughs> you know they beat me so uh, see i I wasn't really into like Prince and Kate Bush at the time, so I wouldn't have known. Had I known, I probably would have tried. But it would yeah. be the worst thing in the world. But I mean, I kind of equate somebody like Kate Bush with somebody like Freddie Mercury in that they both seem to have this um, inherent ability to write very, very 
well and very sophisticated songs on um, on piano, you know, piano and vocal based songs. Mm. I mean, just like yeah. there's loads of little hooks in that record, just even within like songs, just that sort of always come back to you, like them heavy people. Just got so many little hooks and catches in it. It's just oh, it's good. Yeah, that that song, them heavy people, again, kind of speaks to her her age and her sort of maturity because that song has a lot to do with um kind of quite uh esoteric obscure teachings you know like gurdjieff and jisoo and uh the whirling dervishes and stuff like that and for this young girl to take this interest in that stuff is it's as strange as her ability to write and produce such because you were saying like it's really original music and it really is it's not like you can kind of go oh she was obviously influenced so much by the stones or something like that it's like it's a very unique record you feel like that's one of those little blossoms that sort of comes out from nowhere it's just like how has this never existed before like a similar situation might be like you know um uh it's going to be a weird comparison, but Sex Pistols never mind the bollocks because it's like this sort of gem of an idea that suddenly blossoms from seemingly nowhere, but mm. then goes on to influence so many other people. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, so I think yeah. I think one thing we can sort of say that pops up a lot when we talk about good uh, debut albums is like having a very clear, distinct personality or like sense of who you are through your music. Would you con- uh, concur? I, I would, yeah. I think uh, I think coming out with a personality and, and a songwriting uh, characteristic and approach that's unique to you is, you know, can't be a loser. It's definitely a winner. Mm. But yeah, such a good record. Such good production on it as well. Like, this isn't going to be like a critiqued, detailed <laughs> discussion. It's just going to be, man, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I Speaking of this, one last thing is... Um, I remember watching a documentary on on her younger years of making albums, and when she was rec- recording the Kick Inside, you know, uh, where are we? Uh, she didn't produce it. Like she co-produced her next album, and then she started being quite famous for producing her albums. But even on this first one, where she wasn't like at the desk, like she would be in future years, apparently she'd come in with all of the harmonies in her head ready to record. So she'd come in and then record for a whole day and just put all these different vocal harmony bits. So, like, even if you just listen to The Kick Inside as a record of a, of a young girl arranging harmonies alone, it's incredibly genius. It It's very sophisticated, like many older musicians would struggle. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she, she has the gift, you know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we've probably talked enough about that one but uh yes good solid debut album very good well done well done well done we'd like to hear more please (laughs) (laughs) thank you for emailing that um new album in kate (laughs) Uh, (laughs) we're gonna pirate it let me see so my next album on my list is paul simon's debut album paul simon i guess you could call it Um, I, I 
think you like this one because this was the only one that I hadn't heard. Uh, and you said, oh, there's some good songwriting on there. And I know that you like Simon and Garfunkel. So yeah, I mean... I'm, go I'm, I'm going to say you like this one. I'm also going to point out as well, if you're in the UK, it's not technically his debut. Oh, my God. Isn't it? Uh, when Simon and Garfunkel came to the UK in 64, 65, uh, none of their records had been released over here. I think their debut had just been released over in America. So for some reason, Paul Simon recorded a load of Simon and Garfunkel songs that was only ever sold, an album of them, that was only ever sold in the UK. And that was in 1965. Uh, so Paul Simon... Paul Simon is the US debut and it's functionally the debut in the UK but not technically but it oh. is the debut properly like because it was just Simon and Garfunkel stuff that he did on his own the previous one okay but it is the debut so <laughs> I just thought that was an interesting like bit of history that I discovered yeah I had no idea that's um I want to hear that that thing you released in 65 that sounds good um so, yeah, I think it's a great album. I mean, and I noticed a, you were just saying in the last album on, on your list um, how one thing we kind of seem to be pointing to and, and a recurring theme is somebody coming with a fully hatched characteristic to their songwriting and sound and like, oh, wow, that's original. And I think it's either it's either like a band or solo artist coming up with a fresh debut album out of the blue, like, for example, The Kick Inside by Kate Bush, or this thing of like somebody disbanding something that they had before and coming out with this new identity, which I think there's something about that I really like. Like the you know this guy. It's kind of like a redefinition of yourself. Yeah, exactly. And you can show a new side of yourself. And this guy Paul Simon, who was in this quite you know button-down, um, presentable duo who sang in harmony who would appeal to quite a, an adult contemporary audience now has this opportunity in this platform to show what he can do as a songwriter and and kind of show a different side of himself lyrically and then you just get this really weird list of songs and it does just seem like it seems like a songwriter distilling himself and just showing showing himself quite quite purely um and don't get me wrong it's not like they're just a bunch of demos i mean songs like mother and child reunion and me and julio down by the schoolyard two of the big singles from the album but they're still weird it's like they're still weird subject matter and there's something about weird lyrics that i really like can i just say that i did not know that mother and son reunion was paul simon before i heard this i thought this was just like some reggae band that was popular in the 70s so to hear that at the start of this record it's like okay this this redefines everything yeah it, but what i kind of like about bearing around i only heard this last night for the first time but what i kind of quite like about it is that you start off because obviously uh simon and garfunkel you've got relatively thin guitar sound with the two-part harmonies mm. like on the last album they sort of experimented a bit more but that's a discussion for another time um so what I think you've got on the beginning of this record is you've got Mother and Son Reunion, uh, or Mother and Child Reunion, I can't remember what it's called, uh, which is like very fully produced. It's got these massive harmonies with Paul Simon's voice in the middle. It's like, okay, this is new. And then slowly those bits get um, uh, stripped away until you get to things like Hobo Blues or 
old hobo or can't remember what it's called uh where it is literally paul simon singing solo with the acoustic guitar and you think oh, okay i can spot paul simon in simon and garfunkel now which means i can then spot art garfunkel in simon and garfunkel that makes sense yeah 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 well put <laughs> it's like you know this is your guide to what i did yeah definitely um and you know with mother and child reunion i i can't say for sure but it's one of a few, well, one one of a handful of songs across his early solo albums where he would, you could tell he was excited to work with new musicians. And mm. I think with Mother and Child Reunion, he got together this band of um, African-American musicians who played in a totally different style to him to where you have this almost like um, dance hall reggae kind of sound, not reggae, but something like it's, that it's it's fairly reggae yeah and you know it's filtered through reggae and it's just like a glimpse into you know paul simon famously went on to make that album graceland which i'm not really a big fan of but the point is he was working with these you know completely different style of musicians to what he to who he used to work with you know these african musicians on graceland and i think that even shows up on on the first album that's all i'm saying I I can get behind that for uh, entirely well. There's also some great songwriting. Like, Simon and Garfunkel songs are really well written anyway, but you sort of got the further, uh, further development of that on this record. Like, mm. There are some numbers on there that are just like, <gasps> I need to get that good. There seems to be this, like, like, higher tier of songwriting, which I love to delve into and i think paul simon does it well and so do so do the beatles in this in their well in the beatles but also their solo careers where you learn how to write a song right and then you get into a band or you do a solo career and then you you know how to write hits and that's kind of stage one you know how to write like a good hit and you can you can churn them out all day and then you make an album like the first paul simon album where you have all that skill set but you can introduce weird themes to it so you're still writing with this fantastically honed skill set but you're trying new stuff and i think it's the same on that um first john lennon album the plastic ono band album you sort of essentially gain the ability to write weird hits or like more yeah. unusual hits which will stand out more and probably stand the test of time a bit longer yes exactly exactly i think that's a very cool thing in a, in a band or an artist i would con- i would concur with that like uh yeah it was it was quite fun uh, listening to that last night just the first time through though i didn't quite get the uh proper album experience because i was listening to it on youtube so it kept getting uh <laughs> halfway through oh so, man yeah so like you'd end the song and it'd be nice and peaceful and just like do you want to trade on fortune 500 well <laughs> it's just like i don't think this is the intended effect youtube yeah, no, it's uh, not ideal. But why are there so many trading ads at the moment? Um, presumably because people are poor and rich people want to steal more poor people money. Mm. Political! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just noticed a lot of that is, yeah, a lot of trading 212 I've been getting. Yeah, yeah, tons of that. Um, but yeah, anyway. Should we, should we move on to the last album? Of mine, well, anyway. Let's do it. Okay, it's so the last album uh, that I put down on this list was Who Needs Action When You Got Words? Hi, my name's Jack, and I'm living proof of a dead man walking. A spiritless body that's still talking. 
Like it's too late to take precautions. My whole world's already falling apart, broke as easy as porcelain. Roger, what do you think my opinion of this album is? It's by Plan B, by the way. Honestly, I don't know. I listened to the album and um, I'm not even sure what I think of it, let alone what you think of it. Uh, I'm going to go with You Don't Like It. Correct. Uh, it's it's probably one of my least favourite debuts that I've heard. But I heard it second, as it were. Basically, mm. uh, it was a bit of a process of me getting to this album. So... In 2010, Plan B released an album called The Defamation of Strickland Banks, which had the massive hit uh, She Said on it, Mm. uh, which I think is kind of like a very nicely written song. It's got a nice bit of change in it, so you can sort of keep remembering it. Uh, About a couple of years ago, I actually listened to the full album for the first time, and there's just so many great songs on there. It's like a really cool fusion of like rock, soul, hip-hop, uh, all centered around this concept of like uh, this singer who uh, gets put away for a crime and everything, and like his experiences in jail. Which mm. I thought, that's a really interesting combination of all of those things. I wonder what the first record's like. It turns out it's just a white guy rapping, pretending to be really hard. <laughs> <laughs> but like, also, there's loads of like edgelord themes on it, like. Uh, you know, oh, I grew up with a really, you know, religious dad and he oppressed me. And like, oh, there's this family, they're abusing their kids. And oh, you know, there's this happening. It's just like, dude, some of this is probably true, but all of it isn't. Mm. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of, you know, stop trying so hard just to be like edgy and dark. Just like there's one bit, uh, I think, where he talks about his records, uh inspiring people to violence and the effect that has on him on on his on his debut <laughs> which um i uh I, I i don't want to be too harsh a critic but <laughs> yeah uh, it's um it's yeah i mean i've only heard it once but yeah lyrically it's a bit much i mean but the thing is with some hip-hop it's kind of part and parcel of what to expect, but I'm on... aware. I'm aware that's part of the trend, but like, it's it seems like very full in. Like this is where I lay my. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, even from the first song, he's talking about all that, how, you know, how he won't put up with people trying to like, get money when they aren't really even that hard anyway. It's like okay, I think I think one redeeming thing is the fact that because with Plan B from the little I've heard. He's one of these people where he takes elements of different genres of music and mixes them with hip-hop. Well, this is and, kind of what I like about Defamation of Strickland Banks. Yeah. Sorry, I, uh, I thought you were going to continue there. Yeah, I, I just... Um, and I, th- I think there are certain moments where, you know, in the second song, he, he raps over just an acoustic guitar at the beginning. And little ideas like that, I think, probably formed into the album that you like so much. Um, so I guess at least the seeds were there. The seeds were there, but they could have, they could have been, they could have taken root a bit more. Like the second song that you're talking about, where he raps over an acoustic guitar, um, it falls into that sort of trap of lazy songwriting chords where it switches between a major and a minor version of the same chord. Right. And that's, like, fine for, like, a verse section. 
or like something that maybe lasts like 30 mi- seconds in a song or so, 30 minutes in a song Jesus Christ <laughs> <Jesus>. um, <laughs> but uh, no that's the entire like 4 or 5 minute song it's just switching between those two chords and there's a lot of to my memory very sketchily produced acoustics like over hip hop drums and it's a weird mix I know that was a style in the mid noughties but I thought we were moving away from it by that point it's it's kind of sort of the words seem to be overly thought out and the music to me seems to be underly thought out yeah I think I think if I was to categorise it because I, I not everyone who listens to the show knows this but I'm, I'm really into hip hop <coughs> excuse me if I were to categorise this album I'd categorise it as an album influenced by hip hop rather than a good hip hop album yes like it takes uh, the kind of themes and general aesthetic of a good hip-hop album and tries to mimic them i guess yeah well there's even parts lyrically that i think that whole section i was talking about is where you're saying like his music inspires people to violence he's openly says okay let's take this like nas and do this in reverse right and then just proceeds to like riff on that idea for a few minutes so it's like he's very blatant about his sources but it's also kind of like yeah I don't know. I know I'm not the best qualified person to talk about hip-hop, but I can only give my opinions. It's interesting how the debuts that we pointed to as being good and impressive to us, they come fully formed, fully hatched. But really, realistically, a lot of people's first music is going to be highly influenced by the stuff that they're listening to at the time. I think I was quite... uh, I kind of went through all those phases before I put anything out, like, quote-unquote, officially. So I feel kind of like that's a good thing to do. Yeah, that's the same with me. Like, I've been writing songs since I... Since, uh... I think getting on 10 years now. Like, not consistently throughout that 10 years, but... Damn. Really. Because uh, my first one was 2011. I can remember that. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so if we were to put out stuff now as our first album, we would have had that experience. We've dis- we've like worked out what we can do best, what suits our voices, what suits like the instruments that we choose and things like that. And we've also like we- we've sort of molded our own way of writing songs. Whereas in a lot of cases, people don't have ten years of build up. Right. Yeah, they- a lot of it, people have to do it in the spotlight. Yeah, like, um, if you're, like, a teenage band or, like, um, you know, early 20s or something, you've just got your first record deal, you're going to have to do all of your development work either really quickly or in show in front of a million people. Damn. Yeah, it's um, it's a weird time now, musically. Like, you do have to be fully formed to get onto a label, whereas before you could just be, like, talented and then go well, to the, a label and they would develop you up you know even in just in terms of a and r well the key story behind that that i always like to share is a band like pink floyd one of the most famous bands in the world one of the most popular bands in the world um and they didn't really have their big breakthrough album until album number nine mm. that would not happen today well i don't know wouldn't it though if anything i think that points to an example of what would happen today uh, well, you were saying today, like to make, have some mainstream success, you've already got to be fully formed. But then, like an, arti- an artist won't let you release nine al- uh, label won't let you release nine albums that are underperforming 
or only sell to a niche market if it's a major label. Obviously, indie labels have become more prominent in years since, so that's a bit more iffier. But if you are on like Warner Brothers or something, but I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying though. Like to that point, these days I think if you start a band, you're you're very very grassroots in the sense that there's no labels even smelling that you're around you know and so you get together and with home recording these days you get together and you make your debut you know and you your friends buy it or something and then your second album third album by the fourth album there might be an indie label interested in you by the ninth album universal might be interested you know because you've a cultivated a fan base and b cultivated a um a sound and an aesthetic and then by ninth album that might be the breakthrough so it might be a floyd situation well the difference between that one is that uh those nine albums were on emi uh for pink floyd i think they're on emi mm. but the point is they were on a major label which no major label worth its salt today would do that it's true actually yeah um yeah, major labels are... Uh, they're terrible. Uh, they're still around, but they're kind of a dying breed. I feel like people who a lot of people who are making a living these days are doing it on an indie budget, so to speak. Well, it's kind of... It's more and more money into fewer and fewer acts. You can see the same thing happening with Hollywood. And there's, there's cycles and trends in all of this, so that sort of ebbs and flows and changes. But, yeah, it's weird. It certainly is. We've got very off-topic... We have. <laughs> I, I hope so, people like it when we digress. If 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 not, um, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Moving but, on. <laughs> but you're the one listening to this podcast, so. <laughs> yeah, you're no one but yourself to play. Um, so yeah, the last album on my list did is Prince's "For You" from 1978. That's a good album. Um, I'm trying to think whether you think it's a good album or a good debut, particularly because uh, I know you like the earlier Prince stuff. Your favourite Prince album is the second one, the self-titled. Correct. But you've also you've also had three like on this album that you have already said you like. So I don't know if you've split it up as evenly as I have. I'm gonna, um, yeah. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for you like it. I'm afraid your guess was wrong. <gasps> I mean, again, it's like it's <gasps> it's it's, it's uh, silly and only worth the game to write off a debut album with one word, good or bad. But I only put this one on the list because, similar to the Samstown Killers example, I think Prince's second album was so much more uh, just better written, better produced, showcased what he actually is about, at least to me, a lot more. And on the first album, I feel like. I had su such a raw talent there, but it's almost like so raw that, you know, put it on the griddle for a little bit and let it cook. It's, it's, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, I hurt my throat doing that joke. Uh, it's kind of, um, there's a lot more guitar focus and a lot more a sense that he was actually playing it. Like, it sometimes does sound like it is one man playing the whole thing. Doing really well, obviously, but uh, compared to the second album where, like, if you didn't know, it would just sound like a band. Like a backing band. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean... There's also a lot more genre roulette, but 
kind of not quite to the same like the last song turns into a rock number you start this acapella track for you i think it is the title track Mm. and then uh it's sort of like varying levels of r&b between that so it's kind of it's almost counterintuitive at genre roulette being like slightly a disadvantage at least in my eyes i do like that record though this is like minor stuff yeah i mean i think if i was to point to one aspect of this record which i think makes it on the bad list for me is that there's not a lot of like moments i can point to where i go oh he's a really good songwriter it's like obviously he's a really good instrumentalist he's good at overdubbing himself and he's funky as as the day is long but by album two he was writing songs like i feel for you why you want to treat me so bad still waiting and you can kind of tell he got into songwriting as a craft whereas on the first album it's just like this raw example of this kid can play but he can't write distinct hits yet you know i think you've hit the nail on the head there like you can't you couldn't list like oh this is the first half may be a bit dull, but it's got this track on it and this track on it. Yeah. Like, um, whereas the second one you can point to, I Wanna Be Your Lover, um, mm-hmm. I Feel For You, all the ones you just listed, basically. Yeah, totally. And uh, it's almost like, you know, I think most musicians, I think Kate Bush is a strange, weird example of someone who didn't. Most young musicians go through this, this phase on their first album where you can tell who they're influenced by, and they're exploring how to recreate those grooves and sounds. So, like, if someone's really into Nine Inch Nails and they release their debut album, it's going to be very much like working out how an electronic drum machine sounds and what to do with it. Mm. Um, especially if, you know, there's a home-recorded affair. So I think that's kind of the thing with the Prince one. It's just, like, he was into funk. He liked Parliament and Funkadelic and Sly and the Family Stone, and it shows. And it's he does it amazingly for an 18-year-old. But he's not sitting down to write at this point yeah there's no sense of like okay this will be the hit or this is the theme for the album or this is what everything's going to be based around it's just here's some songs yeah yeah in fact i didn't even know that was the debut album um until i got i started reading about prince you know oh really i i thought the blue one the second album with him all naked on the front i thought that was the um the debut i was like damn that's a great debut but (laughs) it isn't the debut yeah, no, I did I did make sure I go through and check every single one of the answers I put down. Like, okay, but was this definitely the debut? <laughs> right. Just because, like, I know it is, but just in case. <laughs> yeah, it's, um... The the Paul Simon one threw me for a loop. I didn't know about the, um, the secret other album. Is it? Do you know what it's called, the other Paul Simon album? Uh, not a clue. It's on Wikipedia. Um... But it was literally like a limited UK only release in 1965. Like the first Paul Simon, uh, the first uh, Simon and Garfunkel album hadn't even been released in the UK at that point. So, wow. and it's a lot of the songs that went on to uh, the third one. Oh like the second right, and the third one. Uh, like you've got Sound of Silence on there. You've got the Bob Dylan uh, pastiche on there. Oh uh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I know he spent some time in the UK. I mean, he had that girl, Kathy, that girlfriend over here, which, you know, she was written about in Kathy's song. Uh, I don't know a great deal about all of that, but I know he spent time over here in the 60s. Well, that make, that kind of makes sense as to why that happened then. 
Yeah. Because the image I had was like Simon and Garfunkel doing a tour and then Paul Simon just going off like in the sneaky little breaks between sets to just try and get stuff recorded. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you know what they were called originally? Um, Tom and Jerry. That's right. See, I've, I've, I've read the Carol King book. It's, <laughs> that's listed in there. Is it the Carol King book, is it? Uh, yeah, in her autobiography, she mentions uh, like uh, knowing Paul Simon for a little bit. She needs to get her oar out of his life. That's her autobiography. She should be talking about her history. She does. His. It's good. Oh. Uh, it's called A Natural Woman and it's available from all good books. I'll <laughs> <laughs> read that again. I wish we had a sponsor like that. It would be good. You can hear it on Audible. <laughs> Mind you, we'd have to read out the spiel, so we'd have to like do it in silly voices every week. I often wonder if we could do that because I listen to a lot of podcasts, and you know, obviously they have ads on them. And I think I wonder if Declan and me could do those readouts. I reckon we could. Yeah, we could, but they would fall apart after five seconds. Or I try and do them in a general grievous voice. You get two free credits a month, and you get to keep your audio work library if you <coughs> if you cancel. We've all suffered from erect- erectile dysfunction, and uh, <laughs> nowadays it's easier than ever to, uh, you know, not have that as an issue. Why not try Blue Chew? Blue Chew pills <laughs> uh, work really fast. What that's kind of ab- what kind of adverts are you getting on your YouTube videos? <laughs> <laughs> that's not on YouTube. That's on um, Tuesdays with Stories. Blue oh, Chew is a chewable, you know, you know, pill that you can take for a bit of. Hubba hubba, ding dong ding dong. Uh, indeed, we have gone very off topic again. <laughs> well, to be fair, we are done with the lists. Oh, uh, if you had to pick a favourite out of the albums you selected, there, what would you say? Ooh, good question, there, young Declan McGee. I'm just having a quick look here. Out of the ones I selected, I'd probably go with uh, Peter Gabriel. His first album, you know, debut album. Ah, interesting. Interesting. I think it's just, it points to that genre roulette thing, which I like so well. And um, and and it's it's very, very creative. You can tell he was, you know, in a really good creative spot at that moment. So, yeah. I thought you were going to say Paul Simon. It was, that's a good answer as well. It was between those two, but he didn't have a barbershop quartet. <laughs> so, Paul, I'm afraid you lose the point. How about you? Um, this is really difficult. Uh, Isn't I shouldn't it? have asked. I shouldn't <laughs> have asked. I knew this was going to get turned around on me. Uh, Mr. Bad Freddy. Guy. I was literally about to make <laughs> Sorry, that joke, you, you fucker. I cut um, you off. <laughs> uh, great uh, minds. I'm going to... Or fools never differ. I'm going to say Arctic Monkeys. It's very close between Kate Bush and Arctic Monkeys from that list, but I've... Arctic Monkeys just speaks to me more. It's got more guitars on it. Yeah. Um, Plus, ain't it well produced, too? Yeah, it's got a load of moments that I love on it as well. Like, there's that great bit in the middle of all you people. Uh, perhaps Vampires is a bit too strong a word, where, like, you've got all these guitars building up these dissonances, and they just hold the chord until they die out, and then you just hear the band, like, turning off their pedals, and then just off mic someone you hear... <laughs> just uh, and just coming straight back in. It's just loads of little moments like that that I love. 
brilliant. I love I love real moments in a record like that. Um, and also, I I love a rock record with good drums. I mean, they in production they say that half the sound of a of a record is the drums volume wise. I just think getting a good drum room kit and sound and player just makes a rock record. Well, there's some fantastic playing on that record, like uh, the intro drums to. Um... Uh, but you look good on the dance floor. Just mwah, beautiful. Just mwah, just like your mum used to make her. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you not drum like your mum? <laughs> Why you forget your Italian accent? <laughs> oh dear. Why you not speak with your Italian drum hands no more? Why don't you Mama practice mia. your? Why don't you practice your Italian paradiddles anymore? Better diddle, better diddle, better diddle. Oh. Italian paradiddles does have to be a band now. Oh man, if if And if was... not, we shall make it. So that's it for this episode of the Weekly Song Podcast. Cheers very much for listening. Um if you enjoyed this episode, if there's a debut album that you think we missed out or should have talked about, or if you disagree with anything, or I don't know. If you're just lonely and you just feel that life is getting you down and just everything is becoming too much and you you just long for an end for all of this but it's not coming and everything is just so so stressful why not send us an email at weeklysongpodcast at gmail.com and we'll do our best to answer or feature on the show if you want that to be done or not um uh why not follow us on soundcloud itunes uh spotify podbean any of these fun places Follow us, leave a like, comment, uh, subscribe, do all of that fun stuff. Uh, where can they find you and your music, Roger? Well, um, Roger Heathers, look me up. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Facebook and all that. Uh, Instagram's good for keeping up to date with, with uh, whatever, whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm releasing. I'm always working on something and releasing something. He's, really, he's working on multiple things at the moment. Multiple things. Had... Multiple mm. things. You've just had a song out with Dullas, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, new sort of collaborative project. Uh, Dullards released um, a double A-side single um, last week. Unlucky for you slash Grand Pier. So uh, that's on my Instagram. Um, and I've been f- listening to that on Turbo Repeat. It's very, very good. Oh, thank you. Um, and yeah, so just look me up, Roger Heathers. And rogerheathers.com is where all of my albums are. So give it a listen and let me know what you think. I'd appreciate it very much. Where can they find you? Nowhere. Uh, they can find me on the Weekly Song Podcast following page. I'm on SoundCloud, so just look at who the Weekly Song Podcast is subscribed to and you'll find my page there with one or two demos and that's about it. Noise. 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 Toy. Right. Uh, we Will we be back next week? Will we not be back next week? We always uh, say we won't be, then we will, and then the one time we actually discussed this, we didn't come back next week. So that's very true. Um, let's say no, and if you hear from us, then be happy. You know we lied. Yeah, we, you know we lied, or you know that we came up with an idea. Because at this point, let's be completely clear, we don't have any ideas for the next episode. So exactly, yeah, we, we're just literally doing this until we can think of random ideas to give you content during the lockdown also talking of content during the lockdown um you may have heard us discuss 
uh, John Grant, Queen of Denmark, near the beginning of this album. If you head over to the Weekly Song Podcast YouTube page, you can find a four-minute video of me talking about Queen of Denmark and what makes it such a great album. Uh, that, that's all I have to say on the matter. Go, Heather. Yeah, I, I think he did a great job on that. People should check it out. And also, it's a great intro to the album as well. Yeah, it's well, it is a great album. A lot of the albums that we mentioned today are great, if you ignore maybe two or three of them. Um, but yeah, that's about it. Uh, we'll see you next time then. Ta-ra. See you next time. Ta-ra.